He absolutely is going to rock your world this morning. So stand with me. Let's give a warm church welcome to Brother Harold Here I am, a bald guy, standing in front of you, really blessed. My wife, Linda, married 39 years, and I guess this is our second time with you. We're excited to be here and tell you what's going on in the world, and hope we can shake you up a little bit, and then the Lord allows minister prophetically a little bit. So, everything's sounding right here, correct? Okay. So, my wife and I are in Yakima, Washington, other side of the country, and as Pastor Florence had said, a pastor, but for 31 years now we've been traveling. 31 years, about a third of our energy is invested overseas. And before we teach the word this morning, we always love to give an update on what's going on in the big worldwide scene. Um, as we said, we're doing a lot in the Middle East, primarily Pakistan and Indonesia right now. And then I'm uh, tied to this daily television program that Muslims listen to. Several million Muslims listen to us as we read through the New Testament. We read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, and talk about it. So if you can put up the first photo, we want to tell you about the huge out-of-the-air meetings going on in the Middle East right now. We work with two major leaders. Why don't you come up and share with me about the things going on over there? We met with two major leaders in the Middle East. The one up here is named Anwar Fazl, and he owns the television station that we have a program on. He has the pastor's church of 30,000. He's got about 30,000 in his church, yes. Yeah. Uh, does a TV program, he does outdoor meetings. He's pretty amazing, and he's 37. Yes. Kind of shakes your boat a little bit. So he gets on the television, whatever major cities in the Middle East, and simply announces, whoever wants to come meet with Jesus, come meet with me. And he'll say, south of the town, north of the town, wherever it is. This one was in a city called Karachi. Just over a million people showed up to receive and understand Jesus Christ. Five miles this way and one mile this way, and people standing up. This. Over 80% of them raise their hand wanting to receive Christ. There's over a thousand imams in that crowd. That's imams, their word for pastors. Muslim pastors are called imams. There's over a thousand of them gathered in there. And this is going on about every six weeks, somewhere across the Middle East, wherever Muslims are, because there's somewhere around half a million Muslims every month receiving Jesus right now. So I have to tell you, so in Six, let's say, Harold told me about Muslims, and I didn't, you know, I was a Montana girl, I didn't know much about the world, I was kind of in my own little place, and he shared verse. And Isaiah, chapter 19, the last part of the chapter, talks about a promise that's not yet fulfilled, that God's going to strike Egypt and heal Egypt, then he will turn to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come to know the true Lord. And then the third party after Egypt and Syria will be Israel, the Jewish people themselves. They will all worship the true God together. So that's never been fulfilled, and I claimed that years and years ago. So, back and in our days... Egypt and Assyria are the foundation of Islam. That's where it all was given birth. So God has said the very foundation of Islam, those people are going to worship the true God with the Jews someday in the future. So I knew that was buried way deep in his heart, let's say 10 years ago. He's like... I think it's time, I think it's time, I think it's time. And he started busting down doors. Anytime a door would open, he would go. Yes. And so there I found myself in Portland, Oregon, sitting at a kitchen table, saying, my husband's going to the Middle 
started killing people there. And it was real scary. And then they showed us pictures, and there was a lady hanging on a bus going to a meeting, and she had life in her eyes. I said, okay, it's just people. You know? They're just people. Yeah. The vast majority of them are just people who want to raise their kids, have a life. Only 2% of the Muslims in the Middle East are fundamentalists. Only 2% of them want to kill you. Okay? Now, if you have a million, that's still 20,000 want to kill you. That's still significant. Okay? But only 2%. In fact, at the start of that meeting, a guy jumped on the stage with a gun to shoot Anwar. Anwar yelled, and if you can see, can't quite see it, but the guys passed out on the stage off to the left side there. And for the entire evening, he was out. Then when everybody left, he woke up and received Christ. That's pretty cool. So this has been going on pretty regular. You can show the next photo. Our other leader we work with is Khalid Nas. Well, this is just a picture of faces, so you can kind of see who they are. Maybe you'll see a face that you can fall in love with. So when Lynn's over there, she wears a head covering, um, especially when from big crowds like this. But this is just people. They're just people who are desperate. In fact, they're so desperate when we were there last time, if we're in a restaurant or the airport, one of our team, the really evangelistic, he'd say, can we pray for you? You want prayer? They're praying. You want prayer? They're praying. As soon as a Muslim gets in line for prayer, everybody in the room sees Christians praying and they get in line. Every place we win, they will quickly say, there's some Christians where they know Muhammad doesn't answer prayers. But the Quran says Jesus answers prayers. The Quran mentions Jesus 92 times, so whenever Christians are praying, they will line up. So everywhere we went, you get one person praying the all, so you got a whole room full, except over here, there's three or four that want to kill you. The rest of them are all in line to pray for. They're looking a little suspicious at Yeah, so that's how it is over there. Um, you're some more fundamentalists, but the vast majority just, they want to know about Jesus. They want prayer, and they want Christians to pray for it. So the next quote that you can see um, is... These smaller meetings, which our other leader does, is in the Al-Qaeda and the, and the uh, uh, sorry, Taliban area. This is a Taliban leader. Um, he recently held meetings outside of Osama bin Laden's compounds. Khalid. Khalid did. And several of Osama's uh, family members received Christ. Uh, Osama's number fifth man gave a donation to continue the preaching of the gospel throughout his country. So that's pretty cool. And... Out here in the remote regions, you know, it's the first time they've ever heard Jesus. In the remote regions, you're outside the big cities, about 40% of them raise their hands and want to receive Christ. In the cities, about 80% will receive Christ. So Anwar is from Lahore. And Lahore is 20 million people in it. Yes. Only thing we have in the United States similar to New York City. Yes. And it, it's kind of, wow. He takes him 17 bodyguards to leave his house. They've tried it. And they have a lot of bombs. Yes. And uh, when we go there, the government gives us two anti-terrorist vehicles. Six, one vehicle in front of us, one behind us. Six machine guns pointing this way, six machine guns pointing this way. Yeah. Machine gun guy in the front seat. <laughs> and then we go through town real fast. Sure. And it's so cool. And then they jump out and blow their whistles and they're yes. getting us where Yeah. So, and when we're up in front of a big crowd, you know, I have a translator next to me, using it as a guy with a shotgun, guy with a rifle, and some sharpshooter up behind us, too, going through the crowd. It's like, Ugh. yeah. Next photo, you can see some of the work we got going over there. Uh, this is one of the schools that we've been able to help build. With Khalid, his dream was to have a children's school. Christians in Pakistan rarely 
remember uh, the girls can't go to, Muslim girls can't go to school in the hills in the more rural areas, but in the cities, the Christians, there's 2% 2, 2 Christian, 98% Muslim. History was everybody lived in India in 1947. If you weren't Hindu, you left India, and that's when Pakistan was born. 98 Muslim, 2% Christian. So now they're saying it's gone from 2% to 6% Christian uh, in the last seven years. However, most of them don't identify as Christians. Those who are receiving Christ identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And some of them are Muslim believers. They call them Muslim background, background believers. That means they believe in Jesus, but they're still not identifying as Christians. They're identifying themselves as believers in Jesus. Nobody knows how many that is, you know, what percentage it is. But it's huge right now what's going on. The grand imam in the city of Portland, he has over 200,000 in his mosque. He came to Portland, Oregon and saw a lady get out of a wheelchair in a church there, and he received Christ. Now every Friday night, he's teaching over 200,000 people about Jesus in the mosque, second largest mosque in the world. So that's pretty cool. Next one, he told it. So this, Khalid's heart was he wanted a Christian school. So we built him this building, and it's three stories. They just finished the third story. It was really great. I was all excited. I went up to the, it's in Fossilabad, and... The Christians weren't allowed to be part of the city, so they went to the outskirts on the dump and they built their uh, area, their community, the houses and stuff on the dump. So if you were to go outside the gate of this place, you would see a little dirt alley and you would see ugly, ugly, ugly poverty. So on the top of the building, I, I rejoice. Look at all the kids that are in school. Yay, yay. You know, we did something good. Then I went and I did a 360 because they don't live inside their houses, they kind of live on top. There isn't any yards or sidewalks or grass or nothing like that. It's garbage. It's garbage. And so you live on the top of your floor, kind of an open thing. And I went around and I looked and I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children with their parents. I said to Khalid, why aren't they in school? Can we just stop the school here in the neighborhood? And he said, None of the Christian children go to school. Most Christians can't read in Muslim countries. Because if they go to a public school, they have to sit in the dirt in the back and can't have books. So that's the kind of thing that's gone in the past. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge shift going on now in favor. So we have a Bible college right next door to this. And we have and three of them in the Middle East. And then Khalid's got, they do a lot with tents. And they have a tent in the grass area. It has a 30-foot brick fence, and they couldn't use wall. They couldn't use it until they built the fence because they didn't want to get grenaded. So they built a big, tall wall. Yes. And so in on the grass there in front of this building is where Khalid has a tent for his church. And the next photo you can see is the graduation. So I said we have three Bible colleges. We're starting our fourth this year. This one, we graduated between 90 and 100 pastors each year. But they figure a third of them will be martyred. They realize to be graduated as a pastor, you are giving your life. So in the midst of this incredible awakening, there's also a price that these zealots are willing to pay. Um, most of them will be beaten, about a third of them will be martyred. So about every two months we get a report, either a bombing or we've lost some of our people over there. That's why it's been. So probably the next one is bombing people? Yes, the next photo you can see is one of the bombings. This one was last month. 
Normally, if they're trying to hurt Christians, they will go into the children's department of the church and blow themselves up. The first time we had to deal with it was really devastating. They went in the children's department, and none of the Muslim doctors would treat our kids um, because they're afraid they'll be killed if they treat our kids. So uh, it was 48 hours. We raised money quickly to try to bribe the doctors. And some of the doctors came in after 48 hours, but the kids had no anesthesia, no nothing for 48 hours. Uh, and this happens about every six weeks somewhere among the Christians that we know over there. So we've got these 2% terrorists, and they're trying to get rid of Christianity. At the same time, you've got a huge amount of Muslims receiving Christ right now. So the next one... With ISIS, it, it kind of... ISIS, you know, the enemy, but it kind of told the Muslims... They, they go, that isn't us. Who are we? So it kind of opened their little minds to start searching for who they were with God. So that's kind of Also, story. another huge trigger, I don't know if I shared last time with you, that opened the door for Muslim Christians Christ was the election of President Obama. Now, irregardless of where you are politically, um, the election of President Obama was one of the most significant things for the Muslim world because his father was Muslim, he claims to be Christian. Now, we really don't know a person's heart, you know, but his public statement is, he says he's Christian, but his father is a Muslim. Now, I was, I was in Africa every October, so before he was elected the first time, I was in October, in Kenya, his home country, and every church we went to was praying he'd be elected. Now, I'm not there to change your politics, so I'm not going to address that issue. I was there just to teach the gospel, but then I'm he got elected in November, Kenya, the country shut down and they danced in the streets. Some of them for three days danced in the streets. Now, it's hard for us to understand, but they have a culture that thinks that one of yours has authority, you're going to benefit by it. They're kind of thinking we're the 51st state of America. You know, that was, and that was very profound for them. However, two things positive, incredibly positive happened. People all over the world who are not white felt something broke on the earth. Now, most of us folks don't understand that if you're my color, but we're out there, we're the minority where we spend most of our life, and most of the earth rejoice when he was elected for that. But number two, what happened, the most positive thing, his father's a Muslim, he claims to be Christian. Well, the Quran says, if your father's a Muslim, the son's a Muslim. Now the single most influential man on earth declares, I am a Christian, but his father's a Muslim. That has given permission for 1.6 billion people to consider Jesus Christ. That's what happened when he got elected. That was one of the most significant things that happened for Christianity in your lifetime, was the election of President Obama. It gave 1.6 billion people permission to consider becoming Christian. It's incredible what's been happening since that day. So in Pakistan, um, with Khalid, we were there last October, and we drove up into the hillside, and as you drove, there were these smokestacks, brick smokestacks, with a 30-foot brick fence around it, and those are slave yards, and they make bricks there, and the people who work there are people who have needed money. They've gone to the brickyard, taken a loan, and then are working it off. They get room and board. It's a really bad room and board, but... If they don't have a place to stay, the brickyard's a good place because they're not bombing and killing people in the brickyard because the brickyard, that's 7% of the 
economy of Pakistan is by making bricks. Gross national product. Yes. There we are, big words. Um, you start when you're three years old. You used to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Last year they passed a law that you only have to work 12 hours a day, six days a week. And that has given an opportunity for the children there to be taught and go to school. So we've started 11 schools for slaves. One of our projects we have going. So these slaves, there are several hundred thousand slaves. Now, if you have an emergency in your home, like a doctor, you need something, you don't have the money, the only place a Christian can go is to the brickyard owner. Banks won't loan them to Christians. So you go to the brickyard owner, you have just sold your family and your generations after you to slavery. There's no way you can get out because you have to work in the brickyard. And so now it becomes generational slavery because you had an emergency in your family. So most of them, you know, are illiterate, but the government passed a law when they said you can only work your slaves 12 hours a day. They also said that any slave who can pass the national test by the seventh grade level is free to go outside the brickyard, get a job, and pay off the price of the slavery. Which so is about 25, law. 50 bucks. It's only about 25 bucks to buy your slavery free, but they can never get 25 bucks. Right. And there isn't any jobs out there. I've been to uh, Bamboo Hut in Mindanao, Philippines, and I've been in Mud Huts in the Congo, across Africa, yes. and people were happy. Yes. Children were happy. There was freedom and there was life. This place, Muslim or Christian, had no life in people's eyes. Uh, I didn't see anything. I, I, it was the, it was like I, probably a war zone for them. There was, it was a so. Islam is a spirit. It's oppressive. It's hard. Where most poor people in the world are happy, under Islam, it even squelches the happiness out of them. The slaves here then um, were trying to get them up where they can pass the national test. So the next two years. Um, is a school. It's one of the schools. So, in the brickyard. Yeah. And we figure it takes us two years to get them so they can pass the test. He's, I'm optimistic. He's looking at five-year-old kids who have, don't know what a letter is. It's going to take a lot longer. If, She's a school teacher. If, if you talk adult, yes. it might be two years, but kids is going to take a while. So Yes. So we're going to get them through. So we started with kids. Parents want their kids to go first, and the parents are going to warm up to the idea. Yes. Shortly. And there's one final photo, I think, that we can see. Oh, yeah, this is our television program. She's the pretty one. I'm the bald one. You can tell that. And in our home, we converted our daughter's bedroom into a recording studio. Which is a card table, some PVC pipes, some ugly green fabric yes. behind it. Maywish from Anwar's sister-in-law came to my house, and she's Imran. Imran, they got to look at this. It's so funny. She's trying to get the little door unlocked so she can show it because it's just a little room, but it looks really nice there. So yes. that's all basic, and she just thought it was pretty funny because they have a big studio kind of thing going, but we just have it a little bit. So we just read through the New Testament. We read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it, and it's broadcast twice a day across all the Muslim world, and millions of Muslims listen. They want to learn the Bible. A lot of them want to learn how to read. Or like, learn English. Or learn English. Like Pakistan just made the national uh, language English. So now everybody has to learn English. And we are one of those that have written scriptures, you can read with us, and practice with us. So now these millions of Muslims, there's about 4,000 Muslims calling every day for prayer. But that's because that's all we can handle. 
Nobody knows how many would call if we had people answer the phone. But there's at least 4,000. The majority of calls come from where it's illegal to preach the gospel, Saudi Arabia and Iran. So they get more calls from the illegal places than anywhere else calling in um, because they're desperate for God right now. So, so praying for Anwar and Khalid and their families' um, protection. It's one thing for you to call and ask people to come to church on Sunday. Yes. And, and we, you might be a little bit late for your ball game in the afternoon, right? Or a little bit late for lunch. It's a little bit. But these guys, I can't imagine calling people to come to a group and then having there be a bomb with their kids. <coughs> that woke. There is a price to pay. And we don't want to try to make us live where they live, but we want to be thankful. We do want to keep them in our homes. Even um, those you know, hundreds of thousands that raise their hands, Many of those will be beat when they get home. By an uncle usually. Usually it's an uncle that will beat them. <clears throat> Normally they'll get beaten three times. And then after that they decide whether to kill them or just let them live as a believer in Jesus. Uh, so that's been going on now. But they realize when they raise their hands, they're risking their lives. But still 80% of them are raising their hands. It's not like America, you know, where you, you put up your hand. I see that hand. Um, it's a little bit more serious to receive Christ. So, so can I tell them about this? Atif? Is okay. that okay? Okay. So Jamie Grissom. We have a lot of millions of little stories of people. Jamie Grissom is a youth pastor somewhere down south that Harold's preached at. And he said, this fellow's going to contact you, and he's a real person. It's like, okay. So I get a friend request from Atif. And Atif is a lawyer. He's been born again four years, maybe five now, because we've talked a while. So three of those years he was under house arrest because of what he was doing. And so he, he's got three kids, ding, ding, ding. And he came and met us in October at the hotel. And he is, was amazing. He would send me little posts. The police just dropped at 3 a.m., dropped off an uh, 11-year-old boy on my doorstep. He had been kidnapped from his father's shop. He had been sodomized, beaten, tortured, seventeen, let's say seventeen bones, collarbone, pelvis broken, and they dumped him off at his doorstep. He picked up the boy. He took him to the hospital. They won't treat him because there's not a police report. He goes to the policeman, and they said they won't write a police report unless they get money. So then a teeth goes to get money. He comes back. He writes, then he takes him back to the hospital. It's all taken two days to get him treated. And he says, pray, pray right now. I never felt like, you know, I don't want to say, I felt like my prayers were effectual at that moment. Because it wasn't about my sore shoulder, praying for my sore shoulder. And I felt attached to four, what is it, 220 plus? Yeah, 240. Yeah, you know, it was the most exciting. I felt like Jesus name, you know, and so a teeth has now there was a pastor and his wife that were beaten by a mob of about ninety people, probably four, three, four years ago. Then they burned them in one of the ovens in the brickyard. 
No one was ever held accountable for that. And no one has ever been, pro a Muslim has never been prosecuted for a Christian beating or death in the country. A thief brought it to court. Her lawyer friend. The lawyer. And then went to about three courts, and he was in the highest court, and he's saying, pray now, pray now on my Facebook, right now. And so I'm praying, and his little phone went ding, it was my prayer, and at that moment the judge said, help them accountable. Right on the history. One of them was, was put to death, about three of them in prison for life and about 70 of them had some other thing and then the rest were let go because they couldn't prove who did what. But the country is changing. The country's out. It's amazing. So the first film you saw in the first picture on where it was a television station, he got sued by some people trying to stop him, went all the way to Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, the justice said, I love his channel. He's free. Get out of here. That's it. So, I watch it every lunchtime. Yes. So now, if Christians are persecuted, the Muslims will mostly uh, form a parade and protest trying to protect Christians. So Everything has changed over there now. They're now standing up for the Christians. A year ago, Easter, one of the bombings, and they went on with, what do you call those leaves? Palm leaves. Palm leaves. Walked down the street with the Christians. Yes. And saying, no more. This is bad. You don't want this. So it's it's pretty amazing watching God do his thing. Transform a country. Yeah. <clears throat> so like our last country was Indonesia. The government said it's gone from six percent Christian to twenty-six percent Christian in the last seven years. Twenty-six percent Christian, that's millions. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. Pakistan is the most fundamentalist country in the world. So when you've got millions being converted. It awakens the rest of the Muslims to consider the possibility that maybe it's okay to work. Huge change is happening. Samuels in Indonesia is actually, he's gold. Yes. He is absolutely amazing, doing stuff, boots on. He took that old ACE program that we used to all use and go into the basement of the church and he did your paces with Christian school. He doesn't have, didn't graduate from fourth grade and he's taken that system and all over his country educated kids every all his kids go to university. He's like, he's a general. Never finished fifth grade, but he speaks seven languages. He was going to introduce us to the ex-president while we were there in the country. Um, so there's just people who are doing stuff. Amazing men and women of God in these countries that are risking everything. So we want to make sure everybody in local situations, it's the worldwide picture, okay? It's not just the Muslim world, it's like in China, 29,000 people are being born again every day. 29,000 every day are born again. There's more Christians in China today than in America. It's huge what's happened there. In Africa, more than 20,000 per day are becoming born again. All told worldwide, there's more than a million per week being added, born again Christians. For every human being born, there's four born again right now. Never in history has the church been growing so rapidly as she is today. And a lot of it in America, people are pessimistic. Christians are pessimistic. They groan and complain about their country. Oh, it's all going downhill. I mean, you need to get out more. It's just that simple, okay? America is still the most blessed place on earth. 
you come home, you get off the airplane, and you come out, nobody's got machine guns aimed at you, you don't have to bribe police officers, and then you come out of the airport, and the first thing you do is see a car, it stops at a stop sign. You go, did you see that? It stopped at a stop sign. And half the world doesn't know what stop signs are. You understand? This place is so peaceful, so abundant in food, it is amazing how absolutely blessed you are. Over half the world today lives on less than $2 a day. Over half the world, less than $2 a day. Most of the world does not sleep on beds. Most of the world is still sleeping on the floor. You know, you and I are so blessed. The poor in America are rich in the world. It's just how it is. Sometimes you've got to shake yourself back into a bigger picture of what's going on in the world. So... We're really excited to be able to do a lot of that. We just hope you can lift yourself above whatever situation you're in. God's living in, even in this country. Sometimes Christians get a pessimistic view of their own country. And you just, because there's myths in the minds of Christians that Christianity used to be so strong and it's going downhill. It's just not true. Like, um, in one of the books I got back there, Victoria's Eschatology, I take the statistics of what America was like 200 years ago. Because sometimes Christians think, oh, we were so godly in the past. No way. 200 years ago, 18, 17, well, 200 years ago, one out of five people were slaves, first of all. That's what America was like. And it was worse than that. I mean, it was spread across. Age of sexual consent in most states was nine years old in America. Nine years old. We talk, complain, oh, but we got no fathers today. Most homes... A child never grew up with both parents. Life expectancy was 38. Just by life expectancy. You normally had stepmothers and stepfathers, uncles, and you were being raised in. Worldwide, I mean, across the country, the whole country. Plus, you got people going out west, killing Native Americans, pushing them off their lands. On the west coast, you got gold rushes, producing the most vile cities in the world. Then you got Chinese people being brought in on the West Coast, forced laborers, building the railroads, mining. Chinese were enslaved on the West Coast. It was terrible what was going on. Men carried guns for protection back at that time in history. Alcohol was much higher than it is today. The first Great Awakening was 1740 to 42. Second Great Awakening was 1805 to 1870. Second Great Awakening, the pinnacle of the Second Great Awakening, 34% were going to church. Today in America, 32% are in church. Every second, 32%. The height of American history, the Second Great Awakening, 34%. We are just barely under that today in church. This myth that America is going downhill, Christianity-wise, it's a myth. Christianity is doing fine. In fact, in this country, over the last 10 years, there have arisen multi-campus churches. There's over 1,500 multi-campus churches in this country. Over 1,500. Christianity is changing her shape, changing what she looks like. And now the next generation is taking over. And it's going to be a different church. Yes. And a lot of us with no hair or gray hair have understood. Not excited about it. One of the most zealous human beings who have ever lived are rising up in this next generation. Like, we knew one time the Jesus movement, 1968 to 1972, well, there were surveys that have been done that over half the ministers of America were born again in that four-year period. 
Over half the ministers in America were born between 1968 and 72. There's something now going on among our young people that's bigger than the Jesus movement. Yes. This country is in a whole other radical reformation. And I'm excited about it. Yes. The little girl sitting in the front. What? <laughs> so let me start by giving a distinction here, okay? Um, I usually don't get the flow until worship, what I'm going to be preaching about. And then the Holy Spirit tells me, right over here. <laughs> no, I usually get it during worship. Sometimes my wife has a burden for something, too. Okay, now you be comfortable at any time, okay? I'm comfortable with people saying things, making comments, okay? Preach 17 years in Africa, okay? They say you're drumming, you're dancing, or you're dead, okay? It's a different world over there, and I like it, so don't be Americans. And if you want to ask a question, please feel free to do that too. One of the important things that we're trying to define is what is the church? We're having to redefine it. Well, one of the distinctions we have to make is what is the kingdom of God? There are two separate entities. The kingdom of God is the rulership of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and sat down on the throne. He has been reigning for 2,000 years. He rules over the hearts of humanity. But anyone who bows their hearts to King Jesus, they begin to some extent experiencing this kingdom. And it consists in righteousness, peace, and joy. All whose hearts are bowed to King Jesus, they start experiencing righteousness, peace, and joy. The Spirit of God starts flowing in them, and the kingdom starts working in their lives. And so the kingdom is the reign of Jesus Christ. That has been growing in the earth, and you can look at all the parables that Jesus starts off saying, the kingdom of God is like this. And he'll say it's like seeds in the soil. It's like yeast and dough. It's continuing to grow, 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 grow. So that's the reign of Jesus Christ. But the church is different. The church is the community of God's people. The church is within the kingdom of God, but they're different. And it's important to distinguish. Throughout church history, the last 2,000 years, Christians have misunderstood the kingdom in different ways at different times. In, there was a guy named Augustine in the 400s, early 400s, who, did, who equated the church and the kingdom. He said that the church, and in his mind, the church centered in the city of Rome, that is the headquarters for the kingdom of God. Augustine taught that the church is the kingdom of God, and that became the dominant thought of what's called the Roman Catholic Church throughout Europe, throughout the Middle Ages, for a thousand years, from the time of Augustine all the way up to the Protestant Reformation, 1517. So for a thousand years, the church, she thought of herself as we are the kingdom. Now that changed the church because the kingdom is something that advances, you know, sometimes even violently. It asserts the authority of Jesus, and the kingdom of God can come on the scene and cast a demon out and say, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Heal the sick, say the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom is the authority of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And so the nature of the kingdom, it can be an aggressive thing. Well, the church then throughout the Middle Ages, thinking she's the kingdom, rationalized aggressiveness. That's why the Crusades, when in seven different seasons, you know, some people will take it up to ten, but the three were kind of minor. They went out and killed Muslims by thousands and thousands. Why? Because the church thought she was the kingdom. She equated herself. Therefore, we have the responsibility for God to take the sword and make people bow. 
When you define yourself a certain way, you're going to act a certain way. So, but on the other hand, if the church is not the kingdom, what is she? If the church is the bride, what kind of words are used in the church? Yes, there's a, she's the house. She's part of the body of Christ. She's a living entity. She's living stones. You start accumulating all the words to describe the church versus the kingdom. You see the church has a different nature. Existing, yes, for the purpose of Jesus. Being the one that he's pouring his heart and his life into. He died for the church. But the church is still a different entity than the kingdom. The primary purpose of the church is to be the dwelling place of God. Number one. Number two is to be a community for God's people. It's also the training grounds. Now those three purposes for the church are different than the kingdom. The kingdom is to establish the rulership of Jesus Christ. Now every Christian is supposed to be submitted to King Jesus. Therefore, they will bring the kingdom into their jobs, into their careers. Whether it is politics or education or medicine or real estate. Because their hearts are bowed to King Jesus, righteousness, peace, and joy will come out into society. But that kingdom reign coming into the mountains of society is different than the community, which, number one, the dwelling place of God. Number two, a community in which we live and a training place. Now, there's other purposes for the church, but I'm just trying, my own personal life, trying to say, okay, God, I want to know what the church is supposed to be because I want my life invested in forming what you want to form. So give me the words that will help me explain now, for a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church thought she was the kingdom of God. Martin Luther came along, 1517, that was the start of the Protestant He looked at that thing in Rome and said, that is not the kingdom of God. Martin Luther redefined the kingdom of God. 500 years ago, he said the kingdom of God works through the natural government, and the church is a separate entity. Now, Martin Luther lived in Germany, so he said the government of Germany that's where the kingdom of God is. Now, that was his alternative. It had huge consequences years later. You see, Germany, the state religion, is Lutheranism. Even today, Lutheran churches are supported by the government. Lutheran ministers are supported by the government in Germany. It still is the dominant way of thinking in Germany. That was the reason when Hitler rose up in Germany, the church did not speak against Hitler. Why? Because... Luther had taught the entire part of that world, no, the government is the kingdom of God, we are the church. So Christians said, we can't speak against the kingdom of God. Hitler is the kingdom of God. Very, very few Christians dared speak against Hitler and what was happening because Luther had defined the kingdom of God as something of its own authority over the authority of the church. They thought they were going against God. See, how you define things does determine how people act. But then we have other individuals the last 500 years who define the kingdom of God. They tried to establish maybe a city. When the Puritans from England came over to New England, Maine, Connecticut, that region, they believed they were going to establish the kingdom of God in New England. We're going to make it happen here. Therefore, we will have no alcohol, we will wear buns in our hair, and we will, you know, be nice people. They thought of a holiness lifestyle to bring the kingdom of God. Okay, now, here we are again today, Christians are wondering, we need to get this thing right, that we don't make mistakes. So you go back and you study scripture and you say, okay, what is the kingdom? And I would offer to you, what I have come to understand, is the rulership of Jesus Christ. It's wherever someone is in submission to King Jesus, there is the kingdom. 
Therefore, it can be in a school classroom, it can be in a carpentry shop, it can be in the Walmart. The kingdom of God is, wherever people are in submission to King Jesus, the kingdom of God manifests. But then we understand the church also. And once we understand and define the church, then we know what to go for. But number one, it was to be a dwelling place for God. And God is neatly, fitly framing together the people of God to become a dwelling. So you find, what is the goal? What does God want for this church? He wants us to be fitly framed together, arm in arm, loving each other. And even that's hard in some cultures. Like we get familiar with other cultures, okay? But Americans tend to be independent thinkers. They think, I'm a Christian, I might go to church. Well, much of the world doesn't think that way. Jewish thought says, no, if you are a Christian, you are in the community. It's that simple. There is no salvation in the Hebraic concept. Salvation in the biblical world was being taken out of the world and brought into the community of God. So it's all part of the process, part of the package. It's seeing a God in heaven who is saying, I want a people. I don't just want a bunch of people saved. I want a people. I will be their God and they will be my people. I want to dwell among them. I want to bless them. I want to give my best when they come together that they will experience me. That's what God wants. He wants a people. You know, trying to get used to different cultures. Like when we started in Kenya, it was really hard, like different marriage customs. Our leader in northern Kenya, um, he's part of a tribe. Now, the bigger you are, the more blessed you are. Okay? And when a man gets married to a woman, he has to be a dowry. The bigger the woman, the bigger the dowry. Okay? In his culture, a big woman's worth seven cows. But in his culture, a skinny woman's only worth two chickens. Okay? That's all you can get for a skinny woman over there. So, the whole different way of thinking. And you do not really get challenged your own thinking until you see how people think differently than you. A lot of that came down to this whole concept of the death of Jesus Christ for me. Because one of the things was in parts of South Africa, there's uh, a tribal people, the Bosa tribe. They have no word in their language for punishment. Because in their culture, they don't believe in punishment. It's not even part of their culture. Now, we are a people who in our culture think if somebody does something wrong, they should be punished. Okay, where did we get that? We did not get that from the Bible. It came from Roman government, where we have our foundation. There was the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire coming through here. And until another culture challenges you, you don't even realize what you believe. And so here's this culture that we're involved with, no word for punishment. And if a man kills another man in their culture, they would never punish that man. They think Americans are stupid for putting people in jail. Because they say, if a man kills another man, he must provide for the wife and children the rest of his life. And we put him in jail, so he, now the wife and kids are left with nothing. They think Americans are stupid for putting people in jail. Why do you do that? You're destroying the wife and kids. You Americans don't understand. Yes, the victims, wife and kids. I hope you understood that, or can make up for my messes, okay? So, they look at us and say, why do you do such foolish things when you could have had that man stay out there working the rest of his life to provide for the victim's wife and children? And as soon as you hear how other countries do things, you got to reanalyze your own self. Say, wait a minute, what's this about? Much of that comes to what uh, Pastor was talking about 
the death of Jesus. I'm a real strong person trying to explain. What happened with the death of Jesus? It's natural for us to think God the Father took punishment and beat Jesus up, punished him. And that did not come from the Bible. That came from a guy named John Calvin 500 years ago. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what actually happened is he was making a covenant. He was the mediator of a new covenant between God and humanity. God said Jesus in the world to establish this covenant. God was opening his arms and saying, All who believe in me, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will forgive your sins. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. And I will give you the Holy Spirit which will cause you to walk in my ways. So while he's hanging on the cross, it's the fulfillment of the covenant that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah had prophesied. That a Messiah would come into the world and God would use him to mediate a new covenant. All who believe, their sins will be forgiven, they'll give a new heart, they'll give a new spirit, they'll give them my Holy Spirit. And so here this covenant is being made. And in a covenant, you make yourself one with whoever your covenant partner is. So my wife and I have a 39 year covenant. So everything we own together. But now, if she had had a million dollar debt before we got married, when I said I do, I would have a million dollar debt. Jesus hanging on the cross, and now the covenant shedding the blood. And what happens? He is making himself one with all who will believe. Therefore, he gets what we have. What did we have? Sin. So, like a disease being lifted off of humanity and coming on Jesus, sin was put on Jesus Christ. The sour sins. Why? Because God is in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. And now that he's making himself one, he gets what we have, which is sin. Now, we get what he had, which is righteousness. The great exchange happened at the cross. My sins got dumped into there. And Jesus died and took my sins into the grave and deposited in Hades. Then he resurrected without my sins. But... I was joined to him at the cross. Yeah. That's where the covenant happened. Yeah. My sins were taken care of, but now that I'm joined to him, I get everything he gets. Because he's my covenant partner. So when he resurrects, I resurrect. Yes. When he ascends, I ascend. When he sat at the right of the throne of God, I'm seated with him in heavenly places. Yeah. Now his spirit is being poured out 24 hours a day. And my heart's open receiving the spirit. Now there's one verse that I'd love to show the distinction in thinking. I use it, Romans 5, verse 10. If you, if you can do it, it'd be great if you put it up above. Romans 5, 10, I love the New American Standard. I find out, though, that I have to be careful in the Bible Belt, because everybody likes the King James. Lord, help me. In fact, sometimes I'll take it out of the motel room, the King James, and preach from it, just to be safe in certain places. Now, Romans 5.10, I'm first time, 5.10. 5.10. We're good here. Okay, we're safe here. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I'd like you to identify two things that happened in Jesus right there. One thing the death of Jesus did, the life of death that Jesus did something else. The death did one thing, the life did something else. Verse 10 again. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Right there, what did the death of Jesus do? Reconcile us. He's dying on the cross. What happened in the death? The new covenant is made. My sins are forgiven. I am joined to Him. I got reconciled. God has opened up His arms. Believe in my Son, and I will be your God. You'll be my people.
That's where reconciliation happened. That's where the relationship was made right. And now I have joined to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, but you're not saved at the cross. It said you're reconciled at the cross. The rest of the verse says, much more, having been reconciled, you shall be saved by his life. You're saved by his life. You're reconciled by his death. You didn't get saved at the cross. You got reconciled at the cross. At the cross, you got joined to him. The relationship was restored. But now, he goes into Hades. He leaves my sins there. He resurrects. The resurrection life. Because he resurrected, I'm going to resurrect. So I'm benefiting by his resurrection life. Then he ascends into heaven. Becomes a life-giving spirit. And it's his life. The spirit that's flowing from him that allows me to be born again. I did not get born again at the cross. I got born again because the life of Jesus flows from heaven and has come into me. His spirit, the life makes me alive. His life is what saves me. But the death reconciled me. Now, that distinction is written in several places in the New Testament. What happens there at the death? I like to think of that covenant. Now my sins are forgiven, and then I get a new heart, new spirit, and he gives me his Holy Spirit, calls me to walk his ways. That's my covenant with God now. It happened, when I believed, I stepped into that covenant, the covenant happened at a historic event 2,000 years ago, God entered into human history, established a covenant with humanity, said all who believe can enter into this covenant relationship, and Jesus is opened up for all of humanity. First John says he's the propitiation for our sins and the sins of all of humanity. It's available to every human being. But all we have to do is believe. Yes. So we believe in this thing. We say, yes, I'm your covenant partner, God. See, it's one thing to realize God loves us. God loves all of humanity. But he does more than love. There's another step to it. It's like you can see a young single guy who loves all the girls. Okay? But he wants to get married to one. He's not only a guy that likes the girls, he wants to get committed. God loves all of humanity, but guess what? He wants to get committed. He wants to get married. God is not just somebody who loves humanity. His arms are open wide. He says, I want to enter into a relationship where I will be their God. They'll be my people. I will walk with them. I'll put my spirit within them. And I want that kind of relationship with people. So here we've got this God who has made this covenant. First, my sins are forgiven. And when we're having that psalm change a little bit, it's the understanding that, no, our sins aren't paid for, they're forgiven. Slight difference, but it has huge implications that Christians are just starting to understand. Because it's only been since John Calvin, 500 years ago, that Christians started thinking sins are paid for. The idea that sins are paid for means that when Jesus took on our sins, then God beat him up and killed him. Because they think God's a just God and must punish sin. That's what we've been taught. God's a just God and must punish sin. But that's a lie. Yes, God's just, but he doesn't have to punish sin. He can forgive sin. So what really happened at the cross, it wasn't the anger of the Father demonstrating the Son that killed him. It was our sins that killed Jesus. Our sins, because he took his sins, our sins upon himself, and the wages of sin is death, so he takes it into the grave. And like a disease being removed from humanity, he takes it on himself. Now when someone believes, sins 
go 2,000 years into history, back into the grave with him. But now my sins are forgiven. Now I get his righteousness. Now that's important, righteousness. I get substance. Now it's different Old Testament versus New Testament. I've got my Bible open in Romans still. You know chapter 4? Some of you know chapter 4 pretty well. It talks about righteousness being accredited to Abraham and David. Now, some Bibles say it's reckoned to them. Well, reckoned doesn't mean it's given. Accredited doesn't mean it's given. It just means it's put on your account. For David and Abraham, righteousness was just put on their account. But they didn't get righteousness. Why? Because Jesus had not yet died. No, in chapter 5, it explains now, we don't only get righteousness accredited to us, but we have a gift of righteousness. Because now that Jesus died, and therefore in verse 17, for if by the transgression of one death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. See, what we get is a gift. Now that Jesus died, we have more than Abraham had, we have more than David had. They understood God has announced that I'm righteous. God announced it. He acted as if they were righteous in the Old Testament, if they believed. But we now get righteousness. Romans chapter 8 says, But our spirit is made righteous and alive. So here you and I, I'm righteous before God. I got the stuff. It's not only put on my account, the right stuff was put in me as his spirit came into me. Yeah. In the same way sin was extracted from me, righteousness was implanted in me. So I got this righteousness growing inside of me. But it doesn't stop there. I get a new heart. So now this new heart, it's in contrast to what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how did we, they know God's will? God had written His will on stone. And Moses brought it down from God. And now the people must submit as slaves. I must obey that. But in the New Testament, God doesn't write His will on stones. He writes it on the hearts of people. And He's at work in us, causing us to want to do His will. The longer you walk with God, the more your heart is wanting to do what He wants you to do. And it's not just a general thing about being good. He's writing His individual desire for you. That's why to do God's will, it doesn't mean you have to kill yourself. Some people still have this thing in their head. I want God's will, not my will. Oh, I want God's will, my That's stupid. Your will is God's will. Now, I've got to qualify that. You're going to have some things go through here that aren't of God. But if you're a born-again Christian, God is writing His desires on your heart. That deep passion in you, that's God in you. You have to come to a place in your life where you stop fighting it. And you start realizing that, God, you put this in me. You're at work in me. If God wants you to be a teacher, you're going to want to be a teacher. If God wants you to be a worship leader, you're going to want to be a worship leader. If God wants you to be a business person, you're going to want to be a business person. You know, I used to hear people say, well, if I become a Christian, God will make me go to Africa. You know, for me, that was the attractive part. As I am a Christian, I get to go to Africa. I always dreamed about doing that kind of thing. Most people are afraid God's going to make them do something they hate. No, he's going to form your heart to want to do his will. And you will never be really successful in life until you've come into agreement with what's in your own heart. As long as you're living in a war against yourself, you'll live as a schizophrenic. Part of you wanting to do God's will, part of you not. 
And God wants to free you from that and come to a place of saying, no, I've submitted my heart to Him. He's at work in me. And I realize I get to do what I want to do. And He's partnering with me to give me the desires of my heart. That's a contrast to the Old Testament where the will's written in stone and I must force myself to obey. In the New Testament, no, He's writing it here. And you come in peace. Now there's one scripture where Jesus... He says to the Father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. One time of his life where he's battling whether he can really endure the cross. Rest of God, if there's any other way, let this depart from me. Okay? You might have a time in your life when you're going to be battling the Garden of Gethsemane over something the issue. Because you know God wants you to do it, but you're still battling. But you don't live in the Garden of Gethsemane. You live... In the garden, eating God. He's talking with you. He's walking with you. You might have a time when you know God wants you to do something, you've got to wrestle through it, that there is a war, but you don't live there. You ought to be living in a place where God, I want your will. And you're writing your will on my heart. And so I believe that I'm not a war inside myself, but I'm literally in cooperation with you. And then finally, he will give me his spirit and cause me to walk in his ways. That there is a new power in existence since Jesus died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. He's pouring out his spirit. Yes, the spirit allows me to have the gifts, allows me to have new power. But the spirit is flowing and causing me to walk in his ways. It's literally pushing me to fulfill his will. Okay, now, most Christians have never got this aspect of their covenant with God. In fact, they think... That to serve God, they have to go against the stream. They think there's a huge river going against them. And they got to fight against the stream to serve God. Oh, everybody's against me, but I'm going to serve God. They think they're going to grit their teeth, and I'm the only one that's going there. That's how some Christians think of trying to please God. That's a wrong way to think. The fourth aspect of your covenant with God. He is pouring out His Spirit cause you to walk. Yes, there's a river of the world going one direction. But there's a stronger river flowing from God, a stronger current that is moving in the will of God. And if you get in the will of God, it will carry you to fulfill His will. And you'll find yourself being carried along, not having to fight the world, but actually in a different stream where you're just saying, God, you're fulfilling my, your will through my life. Whoa! And somehow it becomes fun to live out God's dream. Somehow, this Christian life is not so hard. As a matter of fact, the stream from God is more powerful than the stream of the world. And when I just get in this river, as June says, stay in the center of his love, I am on a raft, a canoe, going in a direction, and somehow things are going my way. Why? Because God is with me. So look at this covenant from God. Finally, Romans chapter 5. I know your stomachs are growling. Here it is. Romans chapter 5. This is where I still live. I'd like to jump down to verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm really skipping around here in these verses. So let me fill in the blanks in between those verses. He makes an explanation that through Adam, sin and death reigns. Most of humanity lives under sin and death. And when the Bible uses the word death, it's not just being put in the grave. The Bible, when it says death, it's the opposite of life. The wages of sin is death. 
The consequences of sin is death. Death includes all that is involved with the consequence of sin. Death includes guilt and shame and oppression and broken relationships, sickness and poverty. Everything that is revealed from sin, that's included in the word death in the Bible. Sin and death reign over humanity because Adam sinned and we all sin. Sin and death is king, it's master. But he says sin and death came through Adam, but through Jesus comes grace and righteousness. Grace and righteousness flowing from him. But a lot of Christians are living under sin and death. They know they're forgiven, but they're still living under sin and death. I can't get free of this. It's like a king over me. And he's teaching us that we can literally partake of what's flowing from Jesus, which is grace and life and righteousness. This grace is flowing from heaven. And we've got to have a more powerful definition of grace. Some of us have been taught a weak definition, like sin is unmerited favor. Thank you for correcting me. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay, sometimes I flip words. And it's so nice to have her along. Otherwise, you're going, what is he saying? Grace, with the taught unmerited favor. See, that's really weak. A more accurate definition, it's the empowering presence of God, enabling you to be who God created you to be. See, grace is not just unmerited favor. It's not just God smiling at you. Grace is the substance of God himself being put in you, empowering you to become what you're created to become. It is literally his substance empowering you, grace, the empowering presence of God, enabling you to be who you're created to be, to do what God's called you to do. It's flowing from him his grace, life, and righteousness. But that verse I last read said, sin reigns in death as grace reigns in righteousness. Sin reigns in death. Sin. Where does sin reign? Where death is. What is death? All the consequences. Shame and guilt. If you are under shame and guilt and poverty and broken relationships, you're under all that, sin will be your king. Sin reigns where death is. Sin reigns when you are filling your mind with all the shame and the guilt. When you're reviewing in your mind all the bad stuff, sin is a king and will force you to sin. That's where sin becomes king. The guy that's drunk out the bar every night is not having good thoughts about himself. His mind is so saturated with all the stupid things he's done in his life. Sin is becoming his king and making him drink. Sin reigns where death is, where guilt is, where shame is. You and I don't have to live in that. Grace reigns where? Where righteousness is. When you realize, no, I don't have to live in shame and guilt. I receive righteousness. Righteousness. The right stuff has been put in me. But God said, what happens if I am receiving righteousness? Grace reigns. Grace is in my king. Grace, the empowering presence of God, enabling me to be what I'm created to be. What happens? That's where grace reigns when I'm conscious of righteousness. If your consciousness of all the bad stuff you're reviewing in your brain, stupid things you're done, with all those stupid things, but you are not believing you're forgiven, you are agreeing with all the accuser of the brethren. Oh, I'm bad. You, you're grasping, well, that keeps me humble. No, it doesn't keep you humble. It keeps you enslaved to sin. When the more you're thinking about all that stupid stuff and stinking thinking over you, sin becomes stronger and stronger. And then, because sin is strong, you're forced to sin, then you feel bad about sinning, and it's a downward spiral. 
Or over here, grace reigns in righteousness. Were you aware of righteousness? He made me righteous. <laughs> what happens? Grace instantly is reigning in my life. A righteous grace is causing me to obey. I need a push. I need a cause in this world. I need something from God pushing me to obey. Because under the world, there is a pushing to sin. Well, guess what? In the new kingdom where Jesus reigns, I'm now receiving the provisions of the king in my life. Now it's pouring into me righteousness, peace, and joy. Now what happens is the king is reigning in my life, and now I'm reigning in life. And when I'm reigning in life, there's grace empowering me to be the wind of God. The Spirit's causing me to obey him. There's a power available for God's people while they're on this earth to live in a different dimension, to live in a kingdom. But yet, righteousness and grace work in tandem. You can't have one without the other. Sin and death work in tandem. If you are going to dwell in the death, the shame, the guilt, sin will be your king. But if you are going to realize, no, Jesus took my sin. I don't have to think about it anymore. Yes. Here comes righteousness. But you've got to tell more righteousness. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, it's, am I perfect and holy? Okay. The Holy Spirit just told me. To <laughs> help people understand what righteousness is. Okay. Jesus, while he was on the earth, lived the perfect life. He fulfilled every whim, every desire of the Father. He had the right stuff. Righteousness is the stuff that allows you to act right. Jesus now has given me a new spirit. And Romans 8 says that spirit is perfectly righteous and alive. Now that I have the right stuff, that can allow me to live right. I want that now to be released. What? I need the activating power of His grace to allow that to work. The right stuff that I had Jesus deposit in me that literally opened my heart, now it will start coming out of me, taking over my behavior, changing my thoughts, allowing me to think good thoughts. Somehow I'm becoming that. Why? Because I've received it. Grace. And righteousness. But they're working in tandem. I'm righteous. He has become my righteousness. I'm not righteous by myself. He has given me his righteousness. God, you've given me the righteousness of Jesus. You don't see all the things I feel bad about in the past. Here, I thought I was keeping myself humble by reviewing all those things. I thought you'd be pleased with me thinking about all those things. And now I learn I'm not supposed to be thinking about those things. I'm not only forgiven, but my conscience is cleansed of all those sin. That the offering, the perfect offering, was Jesus Christ. In contrast to the Old Testament, when all those offerings of the Hebrew people, it got them forgiveness, but never cleansed them of their consciousness of sin. But the book of Hebrews says, even though the offerings in the Old Testament got them forgiveness of sin, but never cleansed their minds, now Jesus has been the final offering, not only in his forgiveness, but also cleansing our minds of sin consciousness. And I'm no longer to be conscious of sin. I'm to be conscious he's made me righteous. And as soon as I've embraced this aspect of the gospel, grace becomes my king. Grace! 
starts empowering me to reign. And I can do in the earth what I'm called to do. If I sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And what is confess? Confess. Con is with, best is agree. If I agree with God, if I sin, I just agree with God. What do I agree with? I sin, yes. What else do I agree with? You forgive me. If I agree with God that he's forgiven me, it's gone. He has cleansed me of all the righteousness and I'm back there. All I have to do is agree with. Confess. Agree with God. I did it, but I agree with you. But too many Christians are agreeing with the accuser of the brethren. They know they sinned, but then they're agreeing, and I'm no good because I sinned. And I'm terrible because I sinned. And I deserve to be sent to hell because I sinned. And I just go through agreeing, agreeing, agreeing with the accuser of the brethren, giving me access to my thoughts, living in that, rather than agreeing with what God has done through Jesus Christ. Because if I agree, yes, I sinned, but Jesus took care of it, I agree with that. And now he's given me his righteousness. What happens? All the righteousness is cleansed away. And I'm back. And grace becomes my king. Yeah. Pushes me. Yeah. So I'm living in a river that's causing me to do his will. And the world's river going the other direction, it's getting smaller and smaller. And in fact, if we all get into the individual rivers from God, this river that we've got going is going to be a whole lot bigger than the river of the world. And it's going to sweep in the little eddies. Everybody out there, they're not going to be able to resist. So I want to get on that river. Those guys look happy. They don't seem like it's a bummer to serve God. They seem like they're excited to serve God. Wow! And their deceptions of thinking sin is fun will be revealed as lies. And then the truth comes. Serving God is what's fun. Living in Him and letting Him love me is what's fun. Everybody say amen. Would you all just be right where you are? I want you to receive some righteousness and grace right now. Romans 5.17 But he who receives an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Who in this room is going to reign in life? He who receives an abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness. Which of us in this room are going to go out that door reigning in life? The ones of us who receive an abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness. The ones of us in this room who don't receive it are going to go out that world door defeated. But the ones of us who receive abundance of grace, there's a river flowing from God, grace, power, presence of God, they will need to be who you're going to be. I got it. Whoop. And righteousness. Whoop. They're going to be the ones who go out that door raining. Then on Monday morning, who's going to rain all day Monday? Not the one who's revealing his, revealing his sins. Not the one who's reminding about how bad he is. But the one who is reminding himself, Jesus has given me his right to that. Ah! And there's flowing from God a river of grace. And it's empowering me today. Yes. Who on Monday is going to live victorious? This group. Yes. This group is going to live 
and be powerful. This group will reign in a kingdom. Because now I've been transferred from darkness and brought to the kingdom of light. And this kingdom of light is where Jesus reigns. And he wants his people to live in this kingdom with righteousness, peace, and joy. And they carry out the king's will because the king is empowering them to carry out his will. This is the gospel. Too many Christians have heard the message Jesus died on the cross and they stay at the cross. Now they're crying at the foot of the cross. I'm terrible, I'm terrible. But thank you, God, for forgiving me. Okay, you can visit that place once in a while. Like once a year. <laughs> but you don't live there. You live on the resurrection side of the cross. You live under the flow of His Spirit and His grace, which is 24 hours a day falling towards you, creating a river of His love. And you are allowing God to love you. You're saying, God loves me. I'm getting up Monday morning. God loves me. I'm His favorite. Go ahead, God. Bless me. Bless me, God. I know you like it. I know you can't resist it. You like blessing me. I receive it. I receive it. I receive it. These people who are reigning life. Sometimes you've looked at some Christian and you see they're all happy, dancing, oh, they're so naive. They need to get more reverent. They get to be more serious. In reality, it might be that simplicity of faith. That person who just knows God loves them, that's reigning in life. They discovered something of simplicity. Of knowing God has done it all. Why don't you all stand up? I want you to receive this one more time. And I want to prophesy over some of you, okay? Okay, I said, while you were sitting there, I want you all to receive it. But you just open your arms to receive it. Just stretch out your hands and say, yeah, I'm going to be a kid. I'm going to believe today. I'm not going to be an unbeliever anymore. I'm going to receive the full gospel. I'm going to enter into this covenant relationship, into this warm place where God is my God, and I am His. And we are his people. We are covenant people. So now, Father, we understand the gospel. Grace, an abundance of grace, has been lavished upon us and is being lavished upon all who will receive. We receive grace. And a gift of righteousness, which is your righteousness demonstrated in Jesus Christ is ours. Righteousness throughout our being. We receive it as a gift. No longer conscious of what the enemy is saying. Conscious of what Jesus is saying from the cross and from the throne room. You're mine. You're mine. I have redeemed you from the curse of this earth. I have redeemed you from sin and shame. I have redeemed you from the consequences of those sins. Come into my kingdom. Come into my reign. And I will take care of you. I will reign in you. I will reign in you. And nothing can stand in our way. Everybody say amen. amen. Thank you, Lord. So now prophetically, my wife's had something to share. Grab the microphone. Thank you, Lord. there's a group, a tribe and if you mess up you're taken outside the tribe and you're put on a little mound and you're surrounded and people
people tell you this is their thinking, that you forgot who you were. Yes. And they come up, you forgot who you were. Yes. You and as you're preaching over here, sometimes we do that a little bit, you yes. know? But as you're preaching over here, sometimes we slip into thinking yeah. over here and we forgot. I'm no good. Uh, and and as the body of Christ is a church, we want to surround those people. We don't want to say, don't condemn them for being there. You just, you just forgot. You forgot who you were. So in that tribe, just like you said, they put the violator in the middle of a little mound. They make a huge circle. And everybody that knows them starts telling them who they are. You are this person. You are mighty. You've done faithful. Remember how good you were last year when you did this. We're grateful for what you did two years ago. We're happy about this. And they tell him about who he is, who she is. So I was thinking maybe somebody today yes. might have forgotten who they were. And in your prophetic time, because you were doing this a little bit, if they forgot who they were and they're having a hard time holding on, I might be able to believe it right now, but... By 2 o'clock this afternoon, it's going to be gone. I don't know if I have it in me to keep it and to remember who I am. So I should speak into their spirit. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, those of you who say, yeah, I have a hard time. By 2 o'clock, I might forget it. Now, all of us forget it sometimes, but you know you want to dislodge that and not shrink back yes. by this afternoon. I want to speak prophetically to your spirit. Not come up here. Just be there. I'm going to prophesy after this, okay, over individuals. But if you feel like, yep, that's me. I can drift back into this. Stinking thinking. And I'm being told from the church that I'm not supposed to. But I don't want to go back there again. You just open your heart. Father, would like to move as a prophet. A prophet who can shake foundations. A prophet who can challenge not only the thoughts of the mind, but the thoughts of the spirit. To shape those lives out of you, in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. I declare life where there was death. I command the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, stop it! Stop it! Stop speaking to the people of God! Stop it! We rebuke you, and the Lord God does replace your voice with His voice. And His voice is saying you're His child. You're his child. You're his child. And he loves you. This is the voice of the living God. We rebuke every other voice. No longer do we turn our ear to that accuser. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. No longer do we listen. The shame or the guilt for it has no place in us. We are so aware of the king and his voice. And we step into this kingdom. So now I speak into your bones. Live. Live. Thoughts come alive. Quicken into God. No longer do you drift back. We take a stand this day. We take a stand in the earth to be who we are created to be. And we remember who we are. Today we remember who we are. We are children of God. We are children of the living God who has breathed in us. I'm in. I'm in. I'm one. Yes, Lord. Hoo-ah! I hear one hoo-ah. Hoo-ah! Yeah! That deserves one more. Hoo-ah! 
get rid of the old voices. We listen to the voice of God, which is, says, you're forgiven, you're loved. Thank you, Lord. Finally, ministry prophetically. Um, just to explain it, for those who aren't aware of it, God talks to everybody. People just have a hard time hearing sometimes. Because we've got so much going on in our lives, we just confuse things. Well, I can't prop some of everybody in here, okay? But sometimes God gives somebody a gift where they can help you hear. And if you go and say, hey, would you see if God's got something, just pray over me. Sometimes they'll say the very words that God's been trying to say to you. And you'll recognize those words if it's really from God. If what I say is from the Holy Spirit, it will bear witness with your spirit. Because God's already been talking to you about it. That's how prophecy works. It's just someone helping hear God what he's already trying to tell you. That's good. And sometimes we find out certain Christians seem to have a better time, easier time to hear that and help you think. And that's what the prophetic gives. Sometimes the Lord uses me that way. So I don't want to, if I open it up, everybody will come. So I got to narrow it down, okay? I like to narrow it down this way. Nobody volunteers themselves. You're disqualified. I want you to think of somebody else. Do you know somebody in this room was in a place in their life where they really need a word from God this morning. They really need a word from God because of where they're at. I'm going to just limit it to seven people this morning. That means you have to limit yourself. Everybody has freedom if you know somebody to say, I'm going to go get that person and I'm going to walk them up. I'm going to stand behind them and see what God would say to them. So you can go grab them right now, but I'm going to cut it off at seven. You know somebody in the room, they need a word from God. Come up, stand right behind them. You listen. The what's being said, we're going to see what God can say to them. You know, if you are you know them, you're welcome to eavesdrop, okay? Pray for them and God speaks to them. But it's really God talking to them. A lot of times you'll have no understanding why what I say means something to them. That's usually how it is, because God speaks words that only they understand. But this is the way God works. Father, we're standing here wanting you to talk. Wanting you to give direction to each of these. Because you know their hearts, they want to hear from you. Okay, looks like we got our seven. God bless. Stand behind your person, okay? Keep believing. And when I come in front of them, you ask God, God, talk to them. Say, God, please talk to them. Talk to them. My brother, for indeed you have stood before him faithfully. Faithfully serving. Then you got dashed and put on the shelf and you wanted to serve me and they were not ready for your gifts and for your abilities. But it quenched and died something in you. But I have been making it come back alive. Even these last couple of months, as you have been dreaming, I have been nurturing that dream for you to do and act and mentor and help because that's what you wanted to do. But not be stuck in the traditional mold of what Christianity is. Your heart has been to reach outside in a different means that others could understand. And you do not have to fit their mold. You have permission to do how you want it to do. And somehow there's young men in the vision being mentored and trained. And they're rising up. And they're having light to engage life. And it's not just Christianese for you. It's helping them live. Helping them be alive and be strong. And then have good families. And then grow up to be strong. Especially men being mentored. That's who you're great to be. But man of God, you've got this thing where you had to work for another for financial provisions. And I want to make you manage it yourself. I want to put you in a place where you are being the one in charge of it and finances start flowing and you'll have some employees under you eventually. Great grace will go down that road. And you have a shepherding heart wherever I put you. 
Because there's a heritage in your family line that does bring joy, does bring peace. And though there was one who misused the anointing in the past, and it hurt, I can trust you. Because you made a decision in your life to see the real, to see the true. And I trust you, says God, if you know it. But don't you give up. You will not stand alone. I have everything you need. And I now, these last two months, been bringing this thing back to life in you. It's me, you. You're on a good road. And I'm going to get you back where everything is working. You will say my life is so fulfilling. I did not know it could be this blessed. This is the path that you're on. Train others. Train them. Because it's in you to do this, man of God. In Jesus' name. Man of God. For indeed you are. And you say, did I get bypassed? What's going on? I want to serve God. I want the ways. But then when devastation came through, seemed to come against you, and the water waves seemed to push you off course, and then you say, and my heart got tore. You wonder if you're going to make it through, but I revealed myself to you. In simplicity, you've always held to me. In simplicity, even when others didn't understand, when they had nothing, and you were confused about yourself, I was still a string and a rope even to your heart, and you never gave up with that. You did well. There was not understanding of the things going on around you. And then you always had a humility before me. You always kept serving. You've always had a heart to walk with others. Man of God, I see your heart. And I'm happy. But hear this. I'm your father. 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 There wasn't the support, the encouragement that you should have had. I was your father then, and I'm still your father. I'm your father. The words you've been wanting to hear, the peace of your heart, when it gets torn, I revealed myself, but it was too hard for you to cling for that momentarily time, but I have been there, man of God, and you've known it, and I have never, never let you experience my back. I will keep my face upon you. Walk with you, man of God. You're healthier than you realize. And you question yourself. And you wonder, God, how can that be? Well, I speak boldly into you, man of God. Take another stand. Take another stand of confidence. Take another stand of knowing who you are today. Because I, indeed, brought you into this very place today to commission you. To say, reach those who nobody else reaches. No longer be timid. No longer make excuses. Rise up. Boldly speak, because I am in you, and I am mighty in you. And I visited you. There's some trees standing around, and you're standing in the middle of this thing. God visited you there. And you wondered if it was really him. You weren't alone. I was there when you cried before me, says God. And I have seized you and will not let you go. Younger man in a vision off to the side. Somehow the wound of the past, I am healing that heart towards you also. You will say, God, thank you for restoring hearts. Bless you. Open you up a new door. Because you've always wanted to take care of others. Teach them, bring them up. Training that you've considered. Finishing it. Do that and you'll be blessed. I put you on that course. And then it's putting you with other people. And there's eventually a staff position. 
things that you always dreamed about doing. But then people of all different cultures, all different places around the world are somehow gathered in this location and part of a staff place you're ministering and touching them. And there's a foundation of financial provisions. And you're saying, God, you get to put me in the middle of this thing. And then there's children off to the side. Great grace. Two to three years ago, you kept yourself. You wondered if you missed me or did not miss me. I have better things for you. You did well. You have better things. And indeed, you will enjoy them and you'll say, God, I didn't know it could be so good. No longer think that you missed because you did not. You chose the good path. You chose the good path. And now you finish this training. You work with a team. And somehow many people are getting stuff they never had. There's people with nothing. And somehow you are being a provision for them. And then I boldly declare to you, there's a picture of a wedding and children. Great joy. Trust me with the things that you're asking of me. Because I have all in my hand. The wound of parents is over. You've identified your own self now this year. You did well. You did well. Bless you guys. Feel free to sit down if you like. Whatever. Man of God, call strong and true upon you. Faithfully, whether you're willing indeed to serve others or rise up and lead. Because both are in you. Both. The hand of me in you, says God, to serve humbly, to serve faithfully, but also to rise up and stand before ones who will be my future. Ones who will be destined for great things. And I will not give you just people who will do little things. I will put under your care people who will do big things. Because I trust what's in you to get into them and to believe they can change the world. There is something in you that can impart into their spirits great faith, great hope, great destiny. You have that ability to believe in them. You have that ability to see it in them, call them forward, and put them on a new course for their life. Others see it. Some have more faith in you than you have in you. And they've already recognized it. Man of God, I will have people yielding to your anointing all the days of your life. I will have people walking by instantly knowing he's walking with God all the days of your life. It's a spirit that you will carry. A spirit that you'll carry. Rest at peace your heart. Don't jump in too quick to commitment. Because I am going to make things fall together in my order. And you do not need to worry yourself about that yet. Here from today, I will begin to steer your heart. And then you will say, okay, I'll follow that. And there'll be great blessings down that road. There's a heritage in your family lineage that manifests through your life. They walk strong. You kept the strength. And they shall take great rejoicing and be very proud. Because indeed you broke the traditions and walked on with the Spirit. That shall do great things in the earth. Things also that you will write will be taught by many in other nations. Treasure that part of your life also. In Jesus' name. Woman of God, woman of God, woman of grace, who sees things in the Spirit, who knows things about others, who's interceded, who's touched my throne room, and has caused others to believe in themselves. You've always been able to lay your hands on one and hear, christen them to believe, another one. But at times the church has not known where to put you. 
At times, other leaders have not known. But you have learned to temper your words and your thoughts. And I can trust you now more than in previous days because you have gone through what you went through and you paid a price for the glory that abides upon you. The glory that sometimes scared people. But you paid a price and you learned, especially with the loss. Sometimes there's a loss that ripped away and put you back on your knees before me. And then you built yourself back up and got back up. And because of that, you are strong and trustworthy now. And it hurt. You built it. Some others a daughter of vision. Great grace, great grace. But it hurt. And mommy did good. I turn hearts back. You will say, God has given me treasures. And I will not go without. So that woman of God, prophetess anointing and things that flow through you, realize it will not be received by everyone. But to those who will receive you, give. And don't force yourself but give to those whose hearts are open. And there will always be some there. There will always be some there. When their hearts are open, they will receive your spirit with full, full heartness. Say, God, use me. And I'm so grateful. Teach, I'll open up doors for you. But you'll have to go beyond your present comfort zone because I'll have to take you places because some are not received in the midst of where they are. So I open up doors outside of you. What I've given you. Don't worry or kick against the goats when they don't open doors. Just be at peace because it'll get easier for you. In Jesus' name. The greatest man of God. For there is a strong hand, of course, in you that you yourself are aware of because I've called you. I've made the calling firm and straight not to burn any bridges, not to abandon anything, but to continue holding responsibility and letting people rest on your shoulders. Because you carry a large load. A day will come in the future when I open up doors that are bigger and broader, but not yet. I want you right where you're at to carry responsibility because many leaders would not make it without you. Many leaders draw on your strength and many who are not leaders just depend on you and say, I want to be like you. There is someone worth modeling my life after. There is even a family that I can demonstrate I want that. Just your presence, just who you are, is such authority throughout this region. But a day will come when I want a people to sit at your feet. And it will not just be things about Scripture that you'll teach, but you have profound truths just about how to live, how to talk, how to be with people, how to have relationships. I want you to enlarge yourself to touch every area of their lives. I want you to know down the road that I'm going to open up such big doors for you to talking and communicating how to be a human, how to be healthy, how to live. It's simple. It's simple, and you know it's on you. You know that I can open up doors, and it will have influence to political leaders, and it will have influence to people who have nothing. You've never discerned, you've never judged, you've always had your hope open. And I gave you that heart because I have intentions of using it. And look also the heritage that has been surrounding you. You stopped the curse, but kept the blessing. You did well. You did well. You are on track. You are doing what I want you to do. And continue on it, but know a day will come. When the wind blows, but it's a change in 
the children. It's a change in your wife. And everybody knows this is the season. Wait for that time. In the meantime, carry the weight. Because many are depending on you. Many are depending on you. Great grace, great grace. Bless you. I see you somehow stepping out of your comfortable place, but wanting to take a step higher. And you're going, there's a bigger city for some reason. There's some trainings relationships there that are going to develop. Somehow family's a little bit comfortable, but you say, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go because the call of God is strong upon me. And you will have great dignity where you go, great favor where you go. And somehow there's a grace on you where people of influence look to you and say, come work with us, come work with us. Those doors will always be open before you. But woman of God, you are so capable managing things, running things, capable of helping people come out of their brokenness, capable in so many areas of your life, and a spirit of counsel that is mighty on you. All these things, do not settle for just one thing, where so many people are trying to find the one thing. I have many doors before you, and you will be able to walk through and choose freely. God, do this now, that now. It's not time to walk into one short season away. There's some training there. It's a bigger city. There's great influence there. But then your life shifts and doors open broadly across this nation. I will let you do it all. Believe big. Don't do anything that would lock you down too tightly at this season of your life. Because of these things and this call, you sit here, my Lord, and I'm still ordaining the future Prophesy a new direction again upon the body. In Jesus' name. New season, new season. One chapter closed. One book set aside. New book is opened. Breaking, breaking the ties that held back. Cutting, cutting. New walking, new walking, new walking. Fresh breath, fresh breath. Purity of voice that is heard. Now, the voice is heard. The shepherd is heard. People respond. People move. They know that this is a God. As of this day, new authority, commissioning, and the book is open. Let it be done. Let it be done. Let it be done. In the name of Jesus Christ, be established in the earth. We make room for this anointing and not another. God has made no mistake in what he's joined, what he's established. He knew and has been working toward this goal for many years. Watch and see, watch and see, watch and see. Because this is a new day. This is a new day. And there are leaders who now are standing around you. They will never give up. They will hold up your arms. Because this is a new day. It has been established in the spirit, completed this day. No longer, no longer held back or held down. Enjoy now. Enjoy now. Make it easier. Make it by grace. Make it by grace. Ministry flows. Now I add to you, I have changed the wind. I have changed the wind to cause things to flow your way, to flow in your direction. And my words now that flow through you will feed many beyond these walls 
but they will follow the words back to your community. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. Just lift your hands up to the Lord. We receive your grace. We receive your grace. Just sing that. We receive your grace. to say, Lord, what would you have me to do 
to sow into this man's ministry. Not this man, this man. Giving. Here's where I want you to alter your mind. Here's where I want you to change the way you think. Giving is about honor. Giving is about a recognition of a deposit that's been made. And as a result of that deposit, the natural outflow is to say, I want to give. The greatest expression of love is to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so we want to honor him. He didn't put up a price and say, I'll come if. We want a blessing. And so I want to ask my wife to come pray. I'm going to ask her to pray. And as she prays, I want you to just very simply, I'm not telling you, I'm not pressuring you. I'm just saying, Lord, what would you have me to do to sow into the life of this man? We had them over for dinner last night at our house along with some of our leaders. But we had them come over early and we fed them. And I said, now that we've had the prophet in the house, do I get the prophet's reward? I wanted to honor them and I want to honor them again. I want us to honor them. So as she prays, I just simply ask you to ask the Lord what he would have you to do. What's in your heart? That's what I hear. What's in your heart to do? Lord, as we just come preparing ourselves, Father. Preparing ourselves to have more of an understanding, Lord, of what this worth is for us today, Lord. Many of us wishing that we could put an amount on it that we don't have. But just coming to you, Lord, with such thanksgiving. Father, for the gift of knowledge that is in Brother Harold, Lord God, to be able to take your word and to discern it according to the ways that you have imparted, Lord God, and not the ways of religion and not the ways of culture and not the ways of the way he was raised, but Lord, but the true gift, Father God, of wanting your bride to be able to know the word of God, to be able to come into unity. We just thank you, Lord, for the revelation. We just thank you, Lord, that such a time as this, Lord, that you are preparing us, not only in our mindset, Lord God, that you are preparing us to know to be your kingdom here now in Tifton, Georgia, in Lowndes County, in the state of Georgia, in the state of Florida, in the state of Washington, wherever you're from, that you, Father God, found it so wonderful this morning that you wanted us to just be able to know this word this living word so that it can reside inside of us so that we can train and teach others, Lord God. So I just thank you, Father. I just thank you that this was capable this morning, Lord. 
Lord, we just close this season of the day, this part of the day, Lord God, with just, I'm just so lost of words. I just want to pray in tongues. I don't even have any English words. It's just so, my cup is running over, as I know yours is as well. Just so thankful, just so thankful, Father God, that we had Go Life Church here with us this morning. I'm so grateful and thankful. Go Life Church is out of Jacksonville Beach, and they are so killing the tactics of the enemy in Jacksonville Beach. And so I'm so honored and so thankful that your family is here. All of us, we support them every single month. So we're just so thankful and grateful for what God is doing, what he's going to continue to do in you. And we're just so honored to get to see your beautiful family just come and be a part with us this morning. Glory be to God. And we have my father's ministry, my father's business ministry here this morning. We're so thankful and so honored to have Pastor Chris and Stacy here with us this morning. We're going to be having our One Love Marriage Conference September the... I'm, I'm, I like my English words are like not in my head right now. Um, the 15th and 16th, that's a Friday night and a Saturday brunch that we're going to do. And Pastor Chris and Stacy, they are going to be here ministering with you, talking to you about what this new ministry is that God has birthed in them. And they are so restoring marriages and relationships one fight at a time. Amen. And so we're going to have a sign-up sheet. We're going to start Wednesday night signing um, you up for that. So we're excited. And um, I think that's it for announcements. Yeah, so. I'm going to finish this up. Don't forget to come back Wednesday night. Uh, we are going to launch our small groups, but we're still finalizing locations. So for the meantime, probably for the first two, next two Wednesdays, we're going to be meeting here, just talking about that and praying about that. So with that being said, I declare that you are blessed. I declare that you are free from condemnation. I declare that the mantle of grace that is upon this man that has laid the word, I declare that we are broke free from the thoughts and the condemnation and the reigning that we've had over our lives in the past, and we establish ourselves under a new reign, the reign of grace. In the name of Jesus, you are dismissed.